in this, uh, I didn't realize it was called Midfield Road or something. Yeah, I never realized that before. So here we are, and I believe the Lord's already spoken to us. And, uh, but I want to carry on in some ways, and I want to focus very simply on three words that all happen to begin with the same letter. The letter is S. I might add um, a fourth or a fifth word. But I want to begin in the second letter of Corinthians and chapter 11. So we're going to major on three words. It all happened to begin with the letter S. And I'm focusing on these words because I'm more and more convinced of the necessity that these three words be in your life. In my life and in a church's life, if that church is to really know the Lord and his workings. So Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and this is his second letter that we've got anyway. He wrote others we haven't got to this church among whom he had spent 18 years of his ministerial life. And you all understand of course that he was never sent by a college and he was never sent particularly, primarily by a church. But uh, a church corroborated what they saw God was doing in him. And uh, primarily he was sent by God. Uh, the church, which do you remember the city where the church was? that corroborated his call. Do you remember the name of the place? It was called Antioch. And the church corroborated his call. And you may know that, uh, you can read this in the book of Acts, that the apostle Paul and his friend Barnabas were sent out because as the church was gathered, uh, and the church was gathered in the Greek, the church was gathered, but primarily it was again a group of leaders, one of whom was black, Simon Niger, his name was. Do you, do you, you all know about this? You, you've read it? And as they were praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, separate me, Paul and Barnabas. Perhaps I shouldn't just quote it. My wife tells me off. Um, go to Acts. Go to the appropriate chapter, uh, which is chapter 13. And uh, let's just read that. 
Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, that means he was a black guy. Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, remarkable, so a man from a political background, God had laid hold of, and he was now either a prophet or a teacher, or maybe both. Some men are prophet teachers. Some men are simply teachers. Some men are simply prophets. Some are prophet teachers. So how many men have you got there that were gathered in the church? Notice it starts with in the church. How many men have you got? One, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, and Saul. You've got five men. The fruit of God's grace. Five men, five is the number of grace in Scripture. And they were united together and they were with the church and while they were ministering to the Lord, which is what we have been doing partly tonight for the last, uh, goodness gracious me, it's only nine o'clock already. Um, uh, they were, we, so we've almost been together for an hour and a half. It passed like a flash to me. I had no idea. They were ministering to the Lord. Lord, we're here. We're here for you. We're here for you. We are serving you. We are before you. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, amen. There is no going forward with God unless we are prepared to fast. One of the things that you must learn to fast from is your phone. You must learn to fast from the TV. It's not just food. You must learn to fast. Fasting implies focus. It implies availability. Analysis shows that your concentration level drops 60% if you spend time with the Lord with the phone in your room. Or whatever else you may be seeking to focus on. It is a distraction if it is in your room. My wife pointed this out to me I knew it already she said and I leave my phone out of the room when I want to just be focused I fast from it in that simple way Lord I'm here for you Lord I'm in your book Lord I'm here in a prayerful mood a prayerful attitude there is no hearing from God without focus. And focus is linked with fasting. For instance, 
my son, who was a very high-class basketball player in Australia, shocked me when he was about 17 years old because he was, what's they, what do they call it, talent-spotted in Australia for higher levels of basketball. He was an artist in the game and he was spotted and he shocked me because he said, Dad, I've thought about it a lot, but it involves Sundays. It involves weekends. We would have to fly to Adelaide for a game. We'd have to fly to Melbourne. He said, it will take me away from the Lord and he fasted from something that could have made him a lot of money. Fasting involves with doing without and prioritizing. And as they were prayerful, ministering to the Lord and fasting, a new move happened. Set apart, the Holy Spirit spoke and said, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Uh, they already sensed his calling. They already sensed it. Set them apart. It is now time. The divine will broke in at that moment and the Holy Spirit spoke, I presume prophetically, I have no idea, how it came, the mechanism does not matter, the fact is the thing that we should take account of. Somehow it, there was a consciousness in the church that the time for release of these two teachers, that they should go out. A church had been enriched by them for a period of time. But now it was time for them to go. The dynamic was going to change in the congregation. But the congregation was utterly willing to let them go. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, uh, that laying on of hands was not anything to, in, to empower Laying on of hands, first of all, means a public agreement with. A public agreement with what's happening. We agree with this. They laid hands on them and prayed and they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful thing. And Paul went out like this, sent. So here's a word. They were sent from heaven. I know, and this is a man and a church must know that it is sent. You are sent into the world not because you have been trained in a college or have gone through the latest dose of seminars, but prior to all that, 
There is that which has come from heaven in your heart. If you did do some seminars, they were only to help a little bit, though sometimes some of these things, in fact, professionalize. And the one thing that God does not want is professionalized ministers. He wants those that come from his heart, that come from heaven, and they know they have been sent. When the time was ripe, he sent his son into the world, born of the Virgin Mary, in the fullness of time. And we are sent, and you and I need to realize that that we are not here simply to warm our butts on a chair, but we are sent into this world. We are sent into the congregation to help one another, to encourage one another. Hallelujah. And that consciousness, do you know one of the problems I don't know whether you've ever thought about this in the Roman letter where Paul is writing his magnum opus as to the gospel. Four times in the first 17 verses he mentions the gospel. He says, I'm separated to the gospel. And, and uh, one of the things he says is, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel why did he say that because he knew there was a temptation to be ashamed we have the word from heaven that can get underneath every bondage and every sin habit we have the only word in this earth that can save. And we are sent. And you must not be ashamed of the good, you know the word gospel simply comes from the old Anglo-Saxon, God's spell. Hallelujah. So that's a comment or two about the word sent. And now a comment or two back in 2 Corinthians 11 about another word. For Paul, when he went to Corinth and spent 18 months with them and preached among them and saw God move in power. And he had been hacked and big time in the place he had been previously. Acts 16, I won't go into it, but he had had a difficult time. And he arrived in Corinth, Sin City. That's Corinth, Sin City. And he'd been sent there. And God moved. And trouble started. Hallelujah. And uh, you know what God did. 
God spoke to him, said to him, fear not, this is Acts 16, fear not, carry on, preach. I have many people in this city. Fear not. That tells you that he was a bit fearful. For God does not say anything irrelevant. Fear not. I have much people in this city. And he carried on and he got through all the rejection and all the opposition. And God did wonders and God did things there as God always does. Because boldness comes. And you pray for the sick and sometimes God works and you, and you speak to the, the down and out and God speaks to their conscience. Stop simply just speaking to people's minds and trying to persuade them. Speak to their conscience. And that's what he did. That's what true ministers do. God moved and there was the birth of a church in Sin City hallelujah and when he writes his first letter he has to remind some of them well some of you were the little boys that men raped Catalites you all know that in the society in Greece and Rome it was quite permissible that as long as a man uh, only had children by his legal wife, she permitted him to have mistresses as long as he didn't bring the children by the mistresses into the house. It was quite permissible for men to have little boys. So the husband was allowed to have a little boy as long as he only regarded his first wife as his true wife and the lineage continued through that. That is a society not unlike the stupidities that are growing in the Western world today. And when Paul writes to them in chapter 6 of his first letter, he says, you were, some of you were, were homosexuals, some of you were catamites, some of you were crooks big time but you were washed but you were sanctified and you were justified this is chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians and he reminds them wonderful how the Lord did that breaking the power of sin there was nothing casual about this and he has to remind them that the kingdom of God is, this is, it's made up of people like this who were and are now washed. And it's tremendous. And I don't know whether you know some of the history, the things that went on. Teachers came into the area. They infiltrated the church. They spoke against Paul. They undermined the ministry that was pure. Uh, and they peddled certain ideas, focused on other things. 
And he, sadly, he has to write to them uh, this, what we know as the second epistle, and where he has to speak about himself a lot and say, you understand that uh, this bunch of super apostles, you know, I don't know whether they've suffered like me. I don't know whether they've been a fool for Jesus like me. You think they're great. And he has to write. And shall I say, give his, what's the word, credentials of his ministry. And uh, one of the main issues of his credentials that you'll read in these latter chapters is that um, he was a fool for Jesus. He was just a servant. He was beaten a few times. He was in the sea a few times because he was pursuing the Lord. These other ones, men in suits. <laughs> no, I'm being, you know what I'm saying. Uh, I shall wear a tie tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, you know what I'm getting at. And Paul says, and then he says this, I wish that you would bear with me. This is chapter 11, verse 1. In a little foolishness. But indeed you are bearing with me. For I'm jealous for you. With a godly jealousy. Now he's going back to his early ministry among them. For, and this is how he describes it. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So my second S, my first one was sent, my second one is simplicity. Adam and Eve in the garden, eyes to God alone, simplicity, profound naivety, wonderful clarity, no sense of guilt and into the garden Adam allows a speaking serpent a speaking serpent Adam who was lord of the creatures allows a creature to go beyond its brief his wife listens to it his wife if you want to add an S became seduced from her simplicity. For her simplicity in God alone, God first. Simplicity of devotion to Christ or to God. She didn't know Christ except incognito. He was incognito in his father. You understand. But he the serpent seduced the woman 
from the simplicity. So I ask myself, Bernard, why are you in Alpington uh, um, this weekend? Bernard, day by day, are you increasingly a simple man? Or is your life, the word has been used already tonight, complicating things? With human agendas, natural plans. I will do this, I will do that, I will do the other. I think of a businessman friend of mine who used to, we used to meet up when we lived in our former place and uh, he was a man I'd known for many, many years and I won't go into his story except to say that uh, he has many businesses. He is pally with people like Richard Branson and so on. And uh, God got hold of him in difficult circumstances. And through his own follies, he passed years and years ago. And he literally bumped into me thousands of miles away when he was jogging. And his first words to me as we, he bumped into me, it was in Laguna Beach one Saturday morning and I was just walking. He said to me, he bumped into me, and he said, you're the last man on earth I want to see. You are the hound of heaven. That's what he said. And it happened, I was speaking at some meetings in, in, in Costa Mesa and I said there's meetings on if you want to come come and he came and re God came perhaps just this what the Lord spoke earlier God came to him and has never left him since and he's gone on and what I've just narrated to you took place in 85 bumping into me and he's gone on and God has blessed him and that man, uh, a few years back, he came to me like a little child. One evening he said, because they used to come and we'd just have a little Bible study together. And he came to me and said, Bernard, I've been offered seven businesses at a very good price in a certain area of the world. And he said, I don't want to do anything that God doesn't want. He said, I, I want to know, I want to hear from the Lord. He came with the simplicity of a child, not reliant upon his expertise. He said, will you pray with me? I just want to hear from God. If God says no, I will not do it. If God says yes, I just want to do what God wants. And I thought, isn't this amazing? I remember that evening. Isn't this amazing? A man of brilliant uh, uh, entrepreneurial ability and discernment in business coming like a child to Jesus. The simplicity of his devotion to Jesus. Hallelujah. And this is what the enemy seeks to seduce us from. And churches get seduced 
from this simplicity. And you must and I must have this day-by-day simplicity. Don't make it complicated. He says to you, come and sit at my table and eat. Baptist churches have got it wrong in their geography. So if you go into a a Baptist church, a good Baptist church, like one that we've sometimes gone to through the years, that a man we know was the pastor of, John Piper. Some of you will have heard of him. And there is a central aisle. The place takes about 1,500 people very comfortably. There is a central aisle. There is a raised platform. And on that platform there is something not exactly unlike this. And there is an open Bible on it. And John or whoever's preaching will not go to that place until they preach. Everything comes to the Bible. The Bible is lifted up. The word is central. And I go to an Anglican church and I make my way into the Anglican church past the baptistry, which is symbolic. And I begin my pilgrimage down the nave from which comes from the Latin to do with navel and moving, nothing to do with this navel, by the way. And... uh, um, You make your way down, and unfortunately they put a rail there. But there, you're moving to the table. The table is central, not the Bible. The table of which Jesus is the head, not the Pope. Not the Archbishop of Canterbury. The table where you eat the bread and drink the wine, symbols of his life given to you day by day. The simplicity of sitting at his table where you don't deserve to be and I don't deserve to be. This simplicity of hearing his voice at the table. Hallelujah. What's he talking about, said uh, Peter to John. Who's he talking about, this betrayal? What's he talking about? You know, listening to Jesus at the table. Hallelujah. Where Jesus washes your feet at the table. Do you remember the first night? The first communion night. Do you remember it? You see the simplicity of Jesus sitting with his people at the table. And this is where everything springs from. And you and I, the enemy wants to seduce us from that wonderful seatedness at the table. In fact, you will know that they actually reposed at table. That's how they did it. They didn't actually sit, they lay. That was the habit. And they shared the same meal. Oh man, some of that still goes on in some of the countries where we have been, in the Middle East, where you still eat out of the same pot. 
you dip your bread into the same pot. Hallelujah. And uh, <laughs> there's no thought of uh, individual cups. Um, you, you get me? I, I hope you... We're one. This is, this is the simplicity. Come and share my meat, Jesus says. Come and share my will. Come and share my presence. Come and share my counsel. Come and share. Come and share. And we get, to, we get seduced from this simplicity, this childlikeness. So that's a little about the second word. Simplicity. And that's where everything begins. It is amazing to me. It is more and more amazing to me that he bids me, he gives me two consciences increasingly. One, Bernard, you're not worthy to be here. The other consciousness is, Bernard, come and welcome. That simplicity is not, well, I'm great. And I've got enough holiness now to sit here. One of the consciousnesses, I, I'm, I, I, I'm failed. I'm, I, I don't belong. The other consciousness is, come and let me put my arms around you and let me help you to hear my heartbeat. That's one of the things I like about John. Because when Peter was sitting down the table there, what's he talking about all this business about someone betraying? You know, and he says to John, hey John, talk to him. Ask him. And John was lying on Jesus' bosom. You know it. And it's because the way John was positioned, he was next to Jesus. And Jesus is here and John is here. And John lays his head back on Jesus' bosom and said, you're talking about he that I give a sop to hallelujah simplicity dear John simplicity laying there on Jesus bosom amen simplicity third word that I want to comment on and illustrate this from the Old Testament particularly Silence. Silence. Everything begins from silence. Genesis 1, verse 1, verse 2. Silence. And everything was without form and void. Silence. And the spirit brooded over the waters. Silence, but not in God's heart. God, in his own being, knowing exactly what he was going to do, the word comes out of silence. When there is divine silence, there is the divine speech. If you're a person that loves noise, you need silence. One of the problems that we are facing today is there's not enough divine silence. 
hearts are not being brought to the silence. The silence that is pregnant with word. For God's silence is pregnant with his purpose. So if you can imagine in eternity the Father and Son and Spirit dwelling together in the eternity of their joyful silence that was pregnant with purpose. Pregnant with creation. Pregnant with good purposes and good plans and wonderful things. Pregnant with paradise increased. Pregnant with the idea of children unto God. That was God's silence. That is the silence that the saints increasingly come to know. It is, it is the silence like the road, those men and, or women that have got their feet in the blocks. If you watch the Commonwealth Games and they're down there and everything is silent and the crowd is silent. And they're, they're ready and they're all waiting. There's not a noise and they're waiting for the gun. And the gun goes off or however it is. The machine does it or whatever. Away. You see, this is not some lazy silence. This is not some empty silence. This is the silence of hearts at peace with God. This is the silence of those who wait in God's pregnancies knowing that there is that which is to come. So I illustrate this from our dear friend Abraham. And I think of him in the heat of the day, if you know the story, sitting there in the heat of the day in his tent doorway, you know, in the desert land where he lived, and all was silent. And the sister word that goes with silence is solitude. That's your fourth S. Solitude. Abraham's sitting there, his wife in the tent, Sarah. And he's there because he was a man of God and a friend of God, you understand that he was no stranger to sitting uh, in faith, in the silence with God. And someone passes by. And he immediately discerns the Trinity. He doesn't know it as Trinity, but he discerns and he rises up from his chair in the silence because he, there's a pregnancy in him, you see, an expectation. There are things that have happened in the past, you see. And uh, he rose up and he ran. He said, come, come, come. And, you know, he says to his wife, prepare a meal. Prepare a meal. And they sat and... Uh, you know, God talked and Sarah laughed, you know, because God said, next year she's going to have a child. It's going to happen. You're going to receive strength, Abraham. If you want to know what had happened to Abraham a little while before that, he had been circumcised. Anyway, there's meaning in that. So now he was a circumcised man. 
God gave to him, and this is a word I wanted to mention as well, strength. Because they become strong. He received strength. You understand he was a man 99 years old. He was past it. But he received strength because he was there in the solitudes and the silences with God that are places of pregnancy where the purposes of God become known to us with a, a deepening clarity. Faith grows there. Consciousness of God increases there. And we hear the sound of eternity. That's what's not being heard in so many places. The sound of eternity that you hear in silence. Turn the radio off. Sometimes I preach in meetings in churches and I've finished preaching and I may or may not have made an altar call or whatever it is and the musicians get up and they walk towards their instruments and I say to them, you can sit down. God needs no background music. Let the Lord speak and work in hearts. And of course they get offended, but who cares? Who cares? We're interested in God. We're interested in people not being emotionally amused and uh, 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 sort of, uh, I need something. I don't know any real man of God or woman of God who won't give you a testimony of the place of silence. You read their books, you read their lives. They all have this, man and woman. They were not strangers to times of solitude and silence. And that's the place where not only pregnancy where the word comes, for the word of God comes out of those places of silence with God and solitude with God. It, they, they are not fruitless times. The word rises, faith rises, and understanding rises. This is where preaching comes from, real preaching, where the Lord speaks. This is where discernment comes from, though not necessarily at the time. But the inner spirit of a man becomes tuned to the presence of God. Abraham was tuned to the presence of God. That was the thing. That's why he discerned these men. And you may remember that as they made to go, having spoken to Abraham about the child that was to come, why, why did Sarah laugh? Do you remember the story? You, if you don't, you need to read it there back in Genesis, I think it's 19. And uh, Moses, uh, Abraham gets out, they get up to go and Abraham goes along with them. He won't let them go. And then God says, 
shall I hide from Abraham that which I'm going to do? Shall I hide from him? And then he said, we're going down to have a look at Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going down to see if it's come up to us as we've heard the sound of it. You've heard the sound of it. And you remember Abraham begins his bargain with God. You know, if there's 50 men in, in Abraham, will you, will, you, you know, will you deal with the righteous? With the, you know, and by his prayer, he saves Lot. Well, from that place, he saves him. Amazing, isn't it? But you see how this man was sensitive and a man of solitude. And the other man, and I want to sort of draw to an end with this one, you see, to illustrate it, because I love David. I've always loved David. David the, the king. David the poet. David the musician. David the warrior. David so much. And you, you may remember, well, you, of course you do. You know the story really well. David and Goliath. The shepherd boy. The boy who had spent, and this is something that I've realized so much, who had spent hours and hours in the solitudes and silences with the sheep. But more than with the sheep, with God. He had sensed the greatness of God. He'd seen the storms rise. He'd seen, you know, he'd seen the bear come. He'd seen the lion come. And uh, he, he, he'd seen the threats of enemies. He, he'd, he'd dwelt in the place of God. He was a man of, of the quiet place in that immenseness of God, you know, with the pastures. Can you imagine it? Do you walk in the country sometimes? You get a little hint of it. Do you go sit in the garden, you know, on a warm summer's evening, all two of them, and uh, <laughs> um, and sit and sit there in the quiet and just allow the the richness of the greatness of God's creativeness and power to seep into your bones into your spirit do you do that or do you get up in the house and you've got a quiet place but David dwelt out there and in the solitudes and in the silences with God was strengthened because these things these S's go together simplicity being sent being strengthened living in the solitude, living in the silences. And dear David was strengthened to overcome the lion and bear. And he was a man God conscious. And as a young man, he turns up in the battlefields of Israel. His brothers are down there. He's taken cheese and other stuff down there. This is chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. His dad has sent him down there 
and he's got, but God had sent him. And he gets in the camp just about the time when the enemy's standing up big time. You know, and off, offering the, um, you know, the battle to Israel. Anyone here going to come forth? Let's settle it all. What man-to-man combat. Send forth your warrior and the one that wins. And they're all quaking in their boots. The people of God are quaking in their boots. Because they're enemy conscious. Because they're dull. Because they don't discern God in the situation. David comes down there and he's tuned to God. And he's discerning and seeing what is happening. What's this man doing? Raising his voice against God. What's he think he's doing? He discerns straight away that it's, it's not even Israel. It's God who's being brought into disrepute. It's God. And he said so. And he gets some bad press. His brothers say to him, oh, what are you mouthing off about? Isn't there a warrior? He says, and the brothers say, well, you're going to be it. And he gets bad press from his brothers. They don't understand that he's seeing something they don't see and feeling something they don't feel and burdened about something that they're not burdened about. They're thinking of their own skin. And hallelujah, you know what happens. Somehow, King Saul decides it's okay to send this stripling this boy this one who's weak and yet he's strong hallelujah and so you all know what they do for David don't you what kings all they they do their best they put Saul's armor on him I see that as the church nowadays, big time in places, the church trying to fight with Saul's armor. But it don't fit. And he knows it doesn't fit. I can't go forward with this. I can't go forward with this. And in the end, And you have to hand it to Saul and the others, (laughs) really, that they said, okay, on you go. On you go. Go out in your simplicity, you man of solitude, you man of the silences, you man who's been sent among us, you go out there, we'll take a chance on you. (laughs) It's not quite that, but you know what I'm saying. I, I, I have to respect Saul for this. They sent something about David that this young boy was not playing games and he was confident in God. Young as he was, stripling as he was. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They knew he'd been somewhere they hadn't been. And they were willing to allow him to go. You remember how he went down, you know, and... uh, 
the champion of Phila Philistines came out and he went down with his sling and he went down to the brook, hallelujah, and he took out five smooth stones. I've been wanting to tell a children's story one day. I want to speak in the name of the stone that he chose that had been tossed around all over the place and shaped and knocked around by all the rivers and the waters that had tumbled down over the years. I tell you, we've got stones. We've got well-tried stones. We've got, we've got stones that God has shaped for us. We must know the stone to pick. And David picked out these well-tried, well-smooth stones. Five of them, again I say to you, five's the number of grace. The things that God has... Beloved, the church doesn't need a new stone. It needs to discover again those old stones. Well-tried. The stones that Abraham knew. The stones that David knew. The stones that Isaiah knew. The stones that Ezekiel knew. All these men were like this. The stones that pe The stones of truth. The stones of power. The stones of confidence. And David took one stone. <laughs> you know, I have come in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he fitted the stone to his sling. You know, and we sing the children's chorus, don't we? Round and round and round and round. Round and round and round. And up, up, up. The stone went and the giant came tumbling down. Crash. And all the kids love it when you go. <laughs> but it hit him right in the head. He smoked the enemy's headship. And that's the enemy's headship is around. But you see, David went forth in confidence in God. He went in the simplicity. He knew he was sent. He was a man who had been tuned in the places of silence and solitude and heard God. And he went in the strengths that the Lord supplies and he saw victory. Then he, as you know, took Goliath's own sword and beheaded him. A wonderful story, familiar to us all. And I know that these things go together. This silence that is pregnant with God. This solitude... <laughs> that is not lonely because the God consciousness increases. If you're a person that loves solitude and wants to stick with it, you need to be with people. <laughs> if you are a person who loves to be with people and can't stand solitude, you need some solitude. For we need both. But I tell you, dear David went forth. and So, 
Praise God, I'm stopping as well, so time for everyone to go home. But hallelujah. Will you receive my word of encouragement and exhortation? Will you receive it and allow the Lord to apply it to your lives? You may feel to be an insignificant shepherd boy stuck away in quiet places like David must have felt the youngest of the tribe sent off to look after the sheep. You remember when Samuel came to anoint him? Oh, you know, we didn't even bother to bring him. He's out there. Bring him. This is he. His heart all prepared and he was ruddy in counsel, in countenance, so the scripture says. Ah, Thank you, Lord.